Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you for tuning in to Triple R. We are doing our entire show via Zoom, with the exception of me, who is sitting here lonely in the studio. But online, I have some of my favorite co-hosts. I've got Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. This is probably the most bizarre show I think I've ever done. I know. It's great. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, keeping you guys as socially distanced as I can possibly do it. Dr. Linden, good morning. Morning, Dr. Linden. Good morning. You well? Yes, keeping very well, enjoying this sunshine. Excellent. And Dr. Crystal, hopefully, I think we have your video and audio coming through different channels, but you're there as well. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Yes, it's fantastic to have uh, science on the air on this lovely Sunday morning. And I'm coming to you through two channels, not just one, two. Two channels. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, it's good to see other humans. I see a few walking around the park, but uh, it's good to see ones that you know. There is a difference, I find. It's one thing to say hello to some nice people you walk past in the park, but it's another thing to actually see people that you recognize and know. I'm starting to recognize people in the park that I previously did not know but they've walked past me so many times it's getting out of control but we have a big show it is um, coming up is the day of immunology which is uh, something that we celebrate every year and we get a bunch of immunologists on the show and we have three immunology guests coming on a little bit later today and believe it or not we're not going to be talking about COVID-19 uh, it seems as though every second researcher you come across is working on COVID-19 these days which I find a bit bullshitty um, because a lot of them have nothing to do with that but everyone's putting their hand up and saying I'm now working on that as well but uh we're not going to be talking about that later today but we have got a new segment for you coming up first dr lauren do you want to start us off from wherever you're broadcasting from most certainly so i yeah basically was trying my best to find something as far away from COVID 19 as possible so i thought again let's go into paleontology and talk about dinosaurs always so yay Oh, it's funny. My husband picked on me. He's like, dinosaurs are like your happy place. I'm like, yeah, they kind of are. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, were the dinosaurs really wiped off the earth by a novel coronavirus? Yeah, that's, that's the new theory. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no, so I was actually reading a paper about dinosaurs and how we can actually look at dinosaur record to learn more about flight. And I thought this was actually a really cool idea. So we know that engineers actually look at living animals a lot for flight. So they look at birds and insects to try and work out how we can design better aeroplanes and you know, hovercraft and all of those cool things. And so this study that was published in Trends in Ecology and Evolution this week was looking at pterosaurs, who are the largest animals ever to fly. They were in existence for 160 million years, so they obviously did pretty well at what they did. But the amazing thing with these dinosaurs is that they were 300 kilograms, you know, give or take, in, in size, but they were actually able to take off from standing position. So they didn't mm. have to have a run-up at all, which is pretty amazing. And so what this paper was talking about is that there's actually two or three um, fossils around the world that are preserved to the point where we actually can see the membranes on their wings and we can get an idea wow. of, yeah and get an idea about where feathers were inserted as well so they're thinking that using those fossils we might actually be able to work out 
how to get a plane to take off without needing a runner as well. So it's a very cool kind of idea. Um, and the other cool thing that they thought these dinosaur fossils might be able to teach us is how to prevent flight instability when you're in the air. So obviously turbulence is a huge issue. Um, and apparently these dinosaurs were actually very, very good at preventing that sort of turbulence and flutter when they were flying through the air. So again, looking back at the fossil record might be able to teach us how we can improve things like suits, for example. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that biology had it right for 160 million years too. And, you know, we're, we're 100 years in and we're still trying to sort it out. But um, the sad part about that, though, is it might make aircraft carriers small. And I, I just love how big aircraft carriers are. And you can land all sorts of planes on them. I think that's just one of the coolest, like they're just one of the ma- most amazing constructions that, you know, forgetting the military aspects for a moment, like being able to land on a boat is kind of a, yeah, a cool thing. A but um, but I do, I do hate turbulence. Yeah, that's true. No, turbulence is my big thing with flying. So if I can mm. get rid of that, it'd be amazing. That'd be cool. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. Dr. Linden, what have you got? Well, that story has kind of made me think about the conversations that might happen in the future, thinking about a paleontologist and an aeronautical engineer being in the same room, trying to get into the same, uh, get each other to understand each other. I think that would be quite an interesting chat. Um, But Dr. Shane, what I wanted to talk about today was nitrogen. Now, nitrogen, we know it's one of the most abundant elements on Earth. It's in all proteins. It is 78% of our atmosphere, Mm. which is pretty lovely, our seventh element, beautiful nitrogen there on the periodic table. And that's great. But if you are a geologist or a volcanologist and you're trying to answer really big questions like where did all the nitrogen on Earth come from, Was it here from the very beginning or did we kind of, did it acquire over time? And what's the difference between the composition of of the the gases that come out of volcanoes versus gases in the atmosphere? All of the nitrogen that we've got going on is a real pain because they contaminate, all these nitrogen uh, molecules contaminate samples, right? If you think you're trying to catch gas that's erupted from a volcano, trying to tease out what's from the volcano and what's from the atmosphere is, is really tricky. But a new study this week that came out in Nature from researchers in the US and France have developed a new method to help separate out the atmospheric nitrogen versus the nitrogen that comes from deeper within the earth. And this takes me back to some high school chemistry uh, because it uses this idea of isotopic clumping, right? So nitrogen molecules that exist in the atmosphere, they're generally two nitrogen uh, atoms mushed together technical term, mushing together, and you've got seven, most of the time you'll have seven protons and seven neutrons giving the atom an atomic weight of 14. But every now and again, you'll get uh, an isotope that will have seven protons and eight neutrons, so 15 for the atomic weight. And most of the time you'll have two 14s stuck together. Rarely you'll have a 14 and a 15. And even more rarely, you'll get two 15s stuck together to make those N2 molecules that make up over three quarters of our atmosphere. And these researchers found that the ratio between all of those is really stable and very clear in our atmospheric nitrogen, but not so much in the the samples that they were getting from places like Yellowstone in the US or Iceland or uh, emissions that were happening deep underground. 
And I think this is really cool, not only because it's a new method to help reduce contamination of these kinds of samples, but the fact that there's a difference in this nitrogen ratio going on in these different places suggests, and this is just my reading of the hypothesis of the paper, that these researchers are saying that it means that the nitrogen from deep within our earth, within the mantle there, because the Yellowstone uh, emissions generally come from deep within the mantle of the earth, they're very old, like formation of the earth old, which is really, that's, that's kind of exciting. And I love this idea of these really small things helping us answer really big problems. Oh, not problems, but questions, deep, yeah. you know, geological questions. Yeah. It's, it's a very cool idea too to think about, you know, if you're in Yellowstone that you're sort of, you know, part of this atmosphere that is so old. Like that's yeah. actually a really cool and, idea. And so deep, like the emissions or the, the eruptions or what's coming out is coming from so far down into mm. the centre of the earth that, I don't know, you can't help but get a little bit ex- excited about that. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I get excited also with you, Dr. Lauren, because there are parts of you that are even older. <laughs> oh, they feel it at the moment. Trust yeah. Me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but it's really I'm interesting. way older than Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it interesting when we think of, you know, you think about the individual atoms and molecules and say, okay, which ones were formed when? And mm. knowing that some of these were formed very recently and then others that were formed around the time of the Earth, and then some of the heavier elements we know are formed from previous stars exploding and so forth. So you actually have parts of you that are that, are that old, parts of you that are, you know, you just breathed into the relatively new that some of these materials were made relatively recently. And then other parts, that, you know, as Dr. Linden's mentioned, which are hard, very hard to pull out and work out where they're coming from and where, where they're located, um, that are around the time of the formation of the Earth. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's really the Sherlock Holmes sort of stuff, isn't it? Like trying to find where that single, you know, you, know, you find these three molecules that just, for some reason, are a little bit different than the others. And did they come from another location or are they just odd ones out, as you say, isotopes mm. that are rare? It's it's super cool. I mean, they've done similar research around um, some of the molecules and so forth and the ice on Mercury just recently as well. And mm. working out why there's a certain amount of ice on Mercury and a certain amount of ice on the moon and that the ratios are a bit odd. And so something's happening there on Mercury. It's not happening on the moon. We talked about it a few weeks back. But determining where those molecules came from is really weird stuff. So thanks, Dr. Linden. Dr. Crystal, what do you got? Well, I have to say, after one week of uh, remote learning from uh, from home, I'm definitely feeling uh, like parts of me are, are very... <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I I'm sorry. I love. I love the fact. I love the fact that your audio dropped out momentarily, and we missed the word "old." (laughs) You still there, Crystal? I think we we all know how she's feeling. I think it's um, that you know, wondering how how um, yeah, juggling all of these different things at once. Yep, I think we've lost uh, we lost Crystal's audio there. Unfortunately, it's one of the one of the risks of doing these Zoom calls that uh, it's caught us briefly. But hey, now you two, are you still work? I mean, you're researchers. Are you still working at the moment from home? How how are you going with that at the moment? Uh, yes, I'm still working from home. I'm teaching and also doing a, a little bit of research. Uh, it's it's funny because although I study the outdoors, the climate, and the mm. atmosphere the vast majority of my work is done on a computer. So it's really not that not that much different. I've got a setup on my dining room table. I've got my books all around me. 
um, looking up into the sky as often as I can and, and trying to get that work done. But I don't know how you're doing it, Lauren, because you do a lot more lab work. Is that correct? Well, we, we work a lot more with people that have got eye conditions, actually. So a lot more sort of clinical trial work. And that's been really tough. So we had to make some really hard decisions about which trials would close down completely and which ones we would just postpone. Um, so we're basically doing everything we can. We're trying to keep in touch with everyone that's been in our trials and, mm. and you know, let them know what's happening. But that's the heartbreaking part of all of this. Wow. It's good stuff. Well, it's good stuff that some of it's still working. Crystal, I think we've got you back. We've got a couple of minutes left for news. Are you there? I hope I'm on the line. You are. Hooray. Thanks, uh, thanks, Dr. Shane. I was just um, looking for a bit of science this week that caught my eye in the journal Science, and it's a little bit about, like, the secret life of cells and a new uh, 3D chemical imaging uh, technology that's actually allowed scientists to visualise little clusters of enzymes that have been proposed for decades, but no one's actually been able to see them before. So um, enzymes are inside your cell and they're proteins that catalyze chemical reactions. So you know, if your, your cell needs to make molecules and needs to synthesize things and make them, and enzymes are kind of like the proteins that make that happen. And if you've ever had the, the fortune of um, studying biochemistry, there's all these pathways about how the molecules are put together, like one enzyme adds one bit and then the next enzyme adds the next bit. And, and these diagrams of how molecules are made within a cell are always like a, like a factory line, like from one enzyme passes the molecule to the next one, passes it to the next one. Um, and it's always been hypothesised that in a real live cell that this would somehow happen in three dimensions. So it wouldn't be like a factory kind of processing unit, but that would actually happen in three dimensions, that the enzymes would all come together and put them between them to observe manufacturing, if you like, the molecule. And so for the first time, uh, all right, um, Crystal, I'm going I'm I'm to chop you off there because your audio is uh, your audio is going a bit nuts on us. So we're going to have to we're going to have to pull the pin on that one. But uh, sounds like some good new 3D imaging technology, which is giving us a really good insight into how enzymes actually interact and work. So fascinating as well. I know nothing about enzymes, and every time it's described to me as a different shape or a different um, you know analogy, I, I learn a little bit more. It's it's cool stuff. Mm. I also love that idea too that you know they've been discussed for so many years like saying someone working on this 30 years ago was like I think it is you know and now to actually prove that yeah. you know it's so exciting uh, some of these experiments take so long I mean the one that always holds the candle for me is the Higgs boson and you know poor old Peter Higgs who was uh, you know God, in his 80s or something who, who predicted this particle you know some 50 years ago and then finally you know with the with the large hadron collider they managed to detect it but you know that's a long time to wait for your stuff to be proven i think it's uh, yeah. it's tough it's tough some science some big well, science this, is tough this has been the first demonstration of catching this metabolon in action cool cool stuff In our virtual studio right now, we have Professor Colby Zaff. Now, Colby is from the Mucosal Immunity and Inflammation Laboratory in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University. Colby, welcome to the studio. Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Look, it's great to talk to you. And we, as I mentioned earlier, we are, you know, celebrating the upcoming Day of Immunology, something we do every year to sort of 
I guess, talk about the importance of immunology, which I'm not sure we have to do anymore. I mean, everyone seems to be aware of it these days for some random reason. But um, give us a bit of an a overview of mucosal work. I mean, what do we mean by mucosal immunology? Well, really, when we talk about um, the mucosal immune system, this is the immune system that really forms the um, the protective layer at the interface between the inside world and the outside world. Okay. So you can imagine sites like the lung, as we talk a lot about like, recently, mm. um, but also the gut, um, the reproductive tract, etc. Anytime the the outside world comes in contact with the, with the body through human through through tissues, and so the mucosal system is named that because of the fact that a lot of those. Uh, sites have lots of mucus and mucus producing cells and regulating that really is critical and so the research that we work on is primarily focused on the gut but we also work on the lung as well um, in, in certain aspects but really understanding you know this this amazing you know just uh, interaction between everything that's that can come in contact with um, with the with the body on the inside so anything you eat or drink um, is potentially a pathogen but also food um, uh, nutrients all those things have to be absorbed the right things have to be absorbed the wrong things have to be taken care of and really the fine-tuning of that immune response is really really uh, uh, important. And when it goes wrong, you get things like inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, diseases of the mucosal system that are really, really quite bad. Hmm. So if, if we go back to one of the things I find really interesting is going back to, and looking at the way in which our immune system sort of kickstarts itself when we're born. So I, I can imagine, you know, when, when you're in utero, the interaction between these systems you're talking about and the outside world is, is buffered by by all the elements of, of the female body that say, you know, I'm not going to let this child be infected by everything that is I'm exposed to. And so they're in this incredible environment. And then all of a sudden, we're out. And, yeah. uh, you know, these, all of these parts that you talk about that have real exposure to the internal workings of our body, you know, from the outside world, all of a sudden they have to kick on. I mean, what, what happens there? Do things just switch on? Are we learning rapidly or is it, is it ready to go the moment we come out? How does that all work? It, it really is a fascinating part of of, of development. It's it really is part of developmental biology. It's sort of outside of the out of the out of the, once you're in, exposed to the air, you're exposed to these bacteria. Because really, you're pretty you're born relatively sterile. Um, there are there's some studies now showing that there are some bacteria that can and and, and microbes that can cross the placenta. But in general, you're born um, sterile, and then you have this rapid increase in um, in bacteria, viruses, fungi, all these things that enter the gut. And you have to somehow develop a response to that. And, and it's, it's, there's a lot of work that's been done on looking at the acquisition of a lot, but not just the development of the immune system, but it also affects the development of all the stem cells in the gut, the development of the gallbladder cells, the cells that start producing the mucus and all that sort of thing. Because those get kickstarted into that. So there is a sequential process that is involved with all of that. And so this is one of those interesting concepts about, um, you know, acquisition of, you know, um, diseases later in life that are caused by associated with changes early on in life these mm. sort of early development things so the trying the associations between cesarean birth versus vaginal birth um whether those are differences in the type of microbes that are acquired at different times how, during your development have different effects on the outcome of your immune system later in life and those are still really big questions that are not really haven't been addressed perfectly well but there is some 
thought that there's the different the type of microbe you acquire at a different time in your life can have a dramatic effect on the development of inflammatory diseases later in life. Mm. Now, in, in particular, I mean, one of the areas you work in is the intestinal immunity aspect. I mean, one of the things I remember from uh, probably somewhere in high school is the idea that when we eat foods, we do various parts of digestion in various parts of our body. So there's something happening in the mouth yeah. and all the way down to the stomach, different things are happening. Is it similar with our immune response? Is there a, you know, a different series of responses in terms of our immunity with regards to where you are in the intestinal tract? Well, the, the anatomical separation of the immune system is becoming now with the tools that we have, especially for imaging and for in real time imaging of, of, of immune system is really is it's amazing how different it is. So we always assumed the gut was the gut. You know, mm. you had your stomach was maybe a little bit different because of all the acids, but then you had the small intestine, large intestine, and we sort of treat all of the same. Now it's clear that every little section is completely different in the in the composition of the cells that are the so-called effector cells, the cells that kill the paras kill parasites and bacteria and things like that. The regulatory cells are the more the regulatory ones that say don't respond. The, the ratios of all those change all the way down the, the gastrointestinal tract, depending on where you're looking. And it's really a fascinating um, set of uh, set of studies to look at all this and how they interact and really probably evolutionarily for where different types of food and different types of parasites and bacteria invade and viruses invade at different sites along the gut. You have a different requirement for all that. So yeah, it's a really fascinating um, topic about this compartmentalization of the immune system and how it sort of can be um, used to prevent disease. Also, when those things go wrong, that's why you get diseases at certain sites. Like, so ulcerative colitis is a disease that affects primarily the colitis, the colon mm. and the end and the, the later because the cells that are associated with that are more enriched for certain aspects of that rather than Crohn's disease, which can happen all the way from the, all the way from the mouth, all the way down to the, to, to the colon. So there, it's a lot of different cells that are doing it. So it can sort of be linked to that kind of aspect as well. Yeah. well. One of the things I find fascinating with this is when we think about our body as a whole and the various types of infections <coughs> that we can get, and we know there are T cells and things that fight infections, you know, near the surface of our skin and, and all these things, we tend to I, maybe it's just me, but we tend to get, um, you know, sore throats and infections in that part of our body, you know, either either sort of in the respiratory system or in, in terms of stomach ailments of types far more frequently than we do get, you know, ulcers on our feet or or other external sort of infections. Is is that because there's just more infectious agents that attack that part of the body or is it that the immune system's sort of not as strong or it's a harder job? I mean, why is that? sort of so distinct I, I think i think honestly i think it's just because we touch our faces more we breathe in a lot more we mm. drink a lot more i think there's just the 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 opportunity for infl infl inflammatory stimuli and stimulus happen a lot more at those sites just because they're the sites that are constantly constantly being barraged by right. by not just not just pathogens but also just um uh, you know parts of pathogens and, and things that activate the immune system and things like that. So, so I think it's really just, it comes down to location, 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 right? It's yep. just, these are the sites. And this is why, you know, things like, you know, there's some, you know, if you just take all of the cell immune cells out of the gut, there's more immune cells in there than there would be in a spleen. So even though the spleen is the major organ for the immune system, there's more immune cells in the gut because it's such a important uh, location where par where pathogens can get across, where you can get this in interaction, the lung as well. You have to always be on guard at these sites because these are the major sites of it. And this is why things like not touching your face, simple as that, is and and wearing a mask, 
you know, is, is the biggest is one of the biggest things you can possibly do. And so all the immunology in the world doesn't matter. If you just don't if you don't get the insult, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So I think that's one of the, the big yeah, things. Interesting. Yeah. So. And and Colby, what specifically are you working on at the moment in your laboratory down there at Monash? I mean what what are so you we have, we going have, after? Um, yeah, so we're really interested in in the big question is, well, why do some people get things like inflammatory bowel disease and others don't? Mm. And it's a really fascinating question in this simple uh, question. So if you take a twin who has inflammatory bowel disease, only 30% of the concordant twins have the same disease. So it says right there, it's not it's not completely genetic. There's other insults that are doing it. And so we've sort of been coming at this and there's lots of different possibilities. So environment is one of them, diet. Most of these people that develop these diseases where one twin has it and the other one doesn't, um, they live in the same household. So, mm. you know, microbiome can contribute, but that, that's probably less thing. So we, we're working on an aspect of this um, in one, one part of the lab, um, looking at the epigenetic aspect of this. So the changes in um, uh, gene expression that aren't dependent on changes in the genome. So, you know, other aspects of controlling T-cell activation and why these T-cells get activated and start causing disease. And so we're looking at a whole layer of um, specific enzymes in these T-cells that are in the gut and how they control the development of an effective response or a regulatory response and how that balance is maintained. And I'm really focusing on that. And mm. side to that, we also have a, another half of the lab that works on um, vitamin A and the role of retinoic acid. And this component really is critical for getting cells to um, seed the gut. If you're on a vitamin A deficient diet, you have very few T-cells in your gut. And so we're trying to understand, well, how does that work and how does diet induce that and what's it actually doing to those cells to make them go to the gut or stay in the gut or live in the gut? And so that's sort of the two big aspects in the lab that we're working on. Mm. Uh, I guess a couple of years ago now, there was this whole big uh, drive towards uh, poo tra transplantation and what yeah. they could do yeah. for us. I mean, has that become a, a bit more of a in the too hard basket and too many bad side effects sort of scenario? I mean, it sounds like... You know, there's there's so much going on down there that we don't understand. Yeah. It just well, it depends on what what your what the, the balance is, right? So if you have a disease like Clostridium difficile, um, which is uncurable until people start giving fecal transplants, right. and it just you know this the anecdotal stories of these of these things are um, amazing. And so if you've had a disease for twenty some years and all of a sudden you mm. get rid of it, I think you'd be happy drinking some poop mm. um, to, mm. to get rid of that. I think marketing that and establishing that as a commercial entity is going to be very, very difficult yep. because of the whole thing. But I think as one-off tests, things like that, I think the, the data is there that it works. It's amazing. And, and it's there. How to make it a drug is going to be really, really tough. And I yep. think that's a lot of people are working on that, trying to isolate the molecules that are involved. But I think it's going to be much more complicated than that. It's a much more of an ecological um, a question rather than a biochemical question. And so understanding the ecology of the gut is, is another major thing that's way over my head and way past my, my, my thought process. Mm. But understanding these niches and how these subsets of bacteria and can form colonies and, and lead to good outcomes is absolutely amazing. And mm. it's a real fascinating part of, uh, of this research. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Colby, I remember when the Brisbane floods occurred, um, hydrologists suddenly became the rock stars of the scientific community. Have, have, you, have you noticed a change in fame as an immunology uh, specialist in the last I few months? I, you know, I have a, it's so hard for me to walk down the streets these days with all my adoring <laughs> fans. Yeah, I know. No. But it, it, really, it really highlights, I think, that the importance of the immune system. I think we always, as an immunologist, we always knew the immune system was the most important system mm. in the whole body, in the whole world, probably. Uh, not to speak lightly, but um, but really with infectious diseases, it's always been known that, yes, the immune system is important, but it's really emerging that in 
um, especially in the context of inflammatory diseases, um, cancer now as well. Like the mm. immune system really is 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 emerging as this central player, and the balance and really the dynamic between the, the environment, like the microbiome the immune system itself, and then all of these different types of diseases, just you can name everything, and everything from, from autism to MS to, you know, mental health to all these things. You can trace these, these, these leads to the, to the immune system, um, tenuous in some cases, but much mm. more solid in others. It's really putting it as a central component, and, and immune health really is emerging as this, as this really important concept. Now, there's lots of snake oil out there about how to boost your immune health, because I don't think anybody really knows, but yeah. I think it's still something that really has to be thought about and worked on for sure. Yeah. Well, Colby, great talking to you. Thanks so much. Uh, good luck with the ongoing work there. It sounds like uh, you know, heading in the right direction and, and some really interesting stuff. So uh, have a great Sunday and thanks for being on Triple R. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Professor Colby Zaff, Professor and Head of the Mucosal Immunity and Inflammation Laboratory down at Monash University. Three. Triple Listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR, and we have another guest in our new fancy virtual studio. We have Professor Nicola Harris, who is the department uh, professor in the Department of Immunology and Pathology at Monash University. Nicola, welcome to RRR. Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to try and turn your volume up just a little bit. Um, now, I think I just, I may have just spoken to your one of your bosses or one of your colleagues, Colby, down there at uh, Monash. Hi. He's one of my colleagues, different different department, different campus, but I know him very well. I'm similar, sure. Similar field. Yeah, no, I'm sure you guys should all, I'm sure you all meet up on Friday for drinks and talk immunology stuff or not. Um, it's uh, it's interesting how in the public mind, all of a sudden, immunology is everywhere. It's, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the rock stars of today. Yeah. I think anyway, yeah, public has a general appreciation of immunology through vaccination. I mean, yeah. vaccination. It always been important even before these times yeah, yeah. now you deal with uh, something that i find fascinating and and this is around the idea of certain things that are transmitted from soils and so forth and and this idea that in in one sense these things are beneficial and in another sense they're devastating uh, depending yeah. on where you live and you know what your so socioeconomic status is and so forth so talk us through what we're talking about there what what are these um, particular um, infectious agents or, or whatever that that, um, that are in the source so uh, so the, one of the reasons we look at these particular infectious infectious agents that's um, worms or soil transmitted helmets is uh, these are the reason that we believe that type 2 immune responses evolved. Um, uh, we've had these all through history, they're all through animals. In the last 60 to 70 years, um, humankind has eradicated them from developed countries because mm -hmm. of sanitation, um, but they're still endemic all through uh, the developing world. Anyone living without a, a good sanitation system um, because they're, they're still they're transmitted through the soil, through mm. humans. Um, so, you know, we think about, and I think everyone knows about type 2 uh, immune cells in that they cause allergy and asthma for us, but this, of course, is not their real purpose, not what that uh, arm of the immune response evolved for. It evolved for keeping these helmets at bay. When I say keeping them at bay, uh, anyone that lives in the endemic region will probably have a helmet infection. You know, 80% okay. of a population in the endemic region where they're transmitted through the soil will be infected. Mm. Luckily, the large majority of those people, because of the type 2 immune response, 
will limit the worm numbers to a small number that don't cause overt problems for their health. And instead, it, there's actually a complete absence of what we call Western diseases, allergy, autoimmunity, okay. even some metabolic diseases we think they're protective against. And where, where, do we, sorry, where do we find these worms in the body? Are they in the, the stomach or are they, whereabouts would they be? Uh, so there's, there's different types of helminths. The most prevalent in the ones that we study traffic through, have different life cycles, traffic through the tissues in their sort of juvenile states, but then they end up living for years in the intestine. So okay. we call them intestinal worms. Mm. Um, and the people that don't deal with them very well, they're a minority, but they end up with really large burdens of these worms in their intestines, and then they have major health problems because right. of that. So particularly malnutrition. Hookworm causes a lot of anemia, so it particularly affects women. Um, children, if they don't deal with the worms, get uh, the worst consequences. So malnutrition together with the yeah. worm infection causes a lot of cognitive um, problems, probably because of the compounded mm. malnutrition. And so, yeah, we're interested in the two sides, getting yeah. rid of them, yep. but understanding uh, why their complete absence in westernised situations, civilizations, then leads to problems with so-called Western diseases and how we replace them in Western the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me that, you know, we've managed to eradicate, which is what is, as you say, a very big problem that can cause malnutrition and, and beyond that, you know, some really serious problems. I can imagine, you know, the iron deficiencies and so forth that would occur in women in particular would be catastrophic to their health. I mean, iron deficiencies change your, you know, your 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 strength day to day they change your you know your bone density changes with malnutrition all of these things because there's all, yeah because there's all yeah. worms but then you then you've got a scenario where you know we fix all that and then ouch we get hit on the other end um how exactly. yeah i mean so this is a, a specific part of our immune system that is so what's happening there is it is it over responding to something different so because it's got nothing else to do or do we know Exactly. There's been a whole lot of theories, um, but uh, the the one that I ascribe to most, that there's the most evidence for at the moment, is they kind of make a set point. Like our bodies have evolved since the beginning of mammalian evolution to have these present. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of set point, immunological reactivity set point, um, that has uh, changed in the absence of these organisms. And indeed, we know that these organisms are really good at um, promoting what we call regulatory immune cells that suppress generalised immune responses. Um, and that's the, the underlying theory at the moment, is that this absence of this regulation or suppression then makes us hyperreactive in, in, um, against things that we don't normally respond mm. to self-antigens which cause autoimmunity and and so forth yeah and there's a lot of good evidence around that right it's fascinating to me when we talk about you know i was just talking to colby about this actually the idea that you know after we're born our immune system starts to rapidly learn from exposure and in this case you think well hang on why isn't this part of the immune system learning from the lack of exposure it seems as though it's already got that information from you know previous generations with regards to these worms normally being there and it's just going to keep going and doing doing what it would normally do is that is that what's happening yeah i mean look at uh, evolution of the mammalian immune response doesn't change that dramatically in, in the 70 years or so that we've mm. been lacking and there's evidence that some of the genes that we carry that pre are known to predispose us to autoimmunity have been selective because selected because they were useful right. in, in keeping these helmets at bay um 
so yeah so you wouldn't expect from a scientific point of view that uh, it um, yeah. would have changed that quickly to deal with their absence yeah so what's the what's the approach in terms of um just in the last minute we have in dealing with this because obviously there's some some immunotherapies starting to come out with regards to certain allergens and so forth that are really, yeah. really effective. And then my, my son's in one of these programs where he's getting an injection a month and, you know, it's hopefully working really well. I mean, is that the the approach to get this part of the immune system so, under control? Two approaches. Some work going on in Australia, actually, by colleagues and, and James Cook, uh, taking parasite proteins and try to use them in a therapeutic manner. Mm-hmm. And we have some of our own proteins we think are interesting. But the major work we've been doing um, is we know that because they live in the gut, they also impact really strongly on um, shaping our microbiota, just yep. like diet does. And we have shown already and, and published this work um, that they uh, impact on the microbiota in a way that that microbiota is healthy and protects us against allergy. Um, so the microbiota is known to, to change a lot of disease states. And we think that changes in diet plus changes in, in the uh, intestinal worms uh, work together to lead to a dysbiotic microbiota that then causes a lot of Western diseases. So we're focusing a lot because it's our skill set on the microbiota helminth interactions mm. in the lab. And mm. we're looking at other diseases now besides allergy. Yeah. Look, fascinating stuff, Nicola. Thanks so much for chatting to us. We have our third and final guest talking about immunology today, Dr. Lisa Milkey, who is the head of the Mucosal Immunity and Cancer Laboratory at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. Lisa, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Shane. Thanks very much for having me on. It's great to have you on. Now, we've already talked about a fair bit about the immune system of the body, and we've talked a bit about the gastrointestinal tract and what's going on there, and you're working in particular in that area. Give us a bit of an idea of what you're looking at in terms of the immune response and what's happening in our in our gut and our gastrointestinal tract and so forth. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of work on the gastrointestinal tract, as you just said, and we're mostly focused on uh, the role of the immune cells in the gut and how they, um, the role that they play in development of cancer, um, mm. but also how they can help us fight against cancer in the gut. So which cells, so are the same cells doing both? I mean, which cells are ending up being cancerous? Is that an error that's happening with the immune cells or is it other cells that are the problem? Yeah, so the main cells that form the tumours in the gut, they're actually formed from the epithelial cells that line the gut. And so these are non-immune cells. Mm-hmm. Um, but the immune cells, they can um, they can have a dual role in, the, in terms of development of cancer. Um, in systems where we have too much inflammation in the gut, so some patients with inflammatory bowel disease, they're more prone to development of cancer in the gut. And we think that these inflammatory molecules produced by immune cells can promote cancer in the gut. Mm. Um, But generally, the immune cells are there to help promote homeostasis and really regulate um, the gut to to maintain this non-inflammatory environment. And so generally, the immune cells, they're there, they're doing a good job to prevent tumorigenesis. And if tumors do do form, um, the immune cells can kick in and they are able to kill tumor cells. Yeah. I was going to say, because so, my understanding is in, in the body at any given time, this is something I found out about 10 years ago and it blew me away. We're getting cancer all the time. 
and our immune system is saying, yep, no problem, take care of it. And then all of a sudden something happens and that system stops functioning adequately to take care of it. Sounds like this is happening in the same way in the gut and in, the, in, in that part of our body as well. And we, we presumably get these cells that are going astray all the time. But um, for some reason, there's a point where it stops working. Yeah, and I think that's certainly happening in the gut. And cancer is a really tricky problem for the immune system. So the immune cells are there to recognise anything foreign, um, like an evading bacteria or virus, and try and kill kill it. And the tumour cells are tricky because they are cells from our own body, mm. but they've changed enough so that they're growing uncontrollably. So it's a little bit more tricky for the immune system to recognise those cells because they are from our own body. But usually what happens with the tumour cells is that they've changed enough so that they're able to be recognised by the immune system and the immune system can, can kill them, yeah. Mm. So what's the, what's the current approach, you know, that I suppose yourself and others are working on in terms of eradicating these tumours? Because I know we've gone from a, I suppose there's always been the surgical approach, there's been a chemotherapy approach. Are we now using this sort of immunotherapy model to sort of go after them with our own immune systems rather than, you know, cutting things out and irradiating things? Is that where we're heading? Yeah, so I'm certainly of the belief that if we can combine multiple different treatments, this is our best bet at really defeating the disease. So mm -hmm. like you said, combining surgery with an immunotherapy or um, as well as a chemotherapy, this is, um, you know, targeting the tumour from um, killing the tumour cells but also enhancing the immune system's ability to kill the tumour cells. Fighting from multiple different angles is really our best bet at killing uh, the tumours. Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, immunotherapy... Um, it does play a role in defence against um, cancer in the gut, so bowel cancer. Um, but we haven't seen as much, much success for immunotherapy in terms of bowel cancer as we have for some of the other cancer types like melanoma. Right. And so we're working ways to yeah, improve this. Mm. And you mentioned before that the immune system may actually be part of a, one of the culprits in causing some of this. Uh, how do you... So how do you fix that problem? Because it sounds like if you're going to, you know, soup up the uh, immune system to go after these cells again, will, will that then enhance that as well? I mean, how do we how do we separate those two things out? Yeah, and that's a really really tricky problem, and um, something that you know we're not totally on top of yet. But certainly, um, once once a tumor has formed, it's it's been shown that enhancing the immune response and inducing inflammation in that setting, that, that is good for killing tumour cells. So in, in that setting, and, you know, it's very, very difficult to, you know, predict who's going to get cancer and to um, stop cancer forming. Um, but once the tumours have developed, um, we think that activating the immune system is is one of the key ways in eradicating tumours. Mm. Is, is there any sort of approach, I guess, just finally before we go to looking at, you know, monitoring the immune system as a way of cancer detection. I know there's a whole lot of different methodologies for different sorts of cancers, but the immune system seems to be involved in all of them in some way, shape or form. Um, yeah. I mean, are there any people looking into that, the possibility of, you know, some sort of monitoring of our immune system and our immune cells as a, as a way of saying, hey, they've, they've activated, they're, they're looking for something, we better go and look for it too? Yeah, so one thing we're trying to do in the lab at the moment is um, looking um, or monitoring the patient's immune system and their immune response um, when they when they've got a tumor, and this will help us detect uh, help us 
um, assign patients to treatments. So we think that if we can look at their immune response once the tumour has developed, um, we can see that they have a good immune response already and that if we can then treat those patients with an immunotherapy, mm. we can boost this response and kill the tumour cells. And so the way in which um, patients are assigned colorectal cancer or bowel cancer patients are assigned to immunotherapy at the moment is really based on the tumour type they have, so the tumour, the molecular type of the tumour, not based on what their immune response is. Mm, so we think that if we can kind of switch this around, look at their immune response and say, yes, you're most likely to respond to the immunotherapy, we think that um, we can kind of be better, better choose the patients that are going to respond. Yeah. Look, that's um, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much, Lisa. We're going to have to go because we're almost out of time. But you're giving a talk. I think it's on the uh, – we agreed it was on the 15th of May along with some yeah. of your, the colleagues we also spoke to today. And uh, it'll be online. If people want to find the details, just I, – I did this myself. Just Google Day of Immunology. You'll find it very easily. And the Day of Immunology, by the way, is the 29th of April. April, yep. We celebrate this every year. Normally, there's a whole other public events in public. Um, these will be online, but they'll still be great, hopefully. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the ongoing work. All right. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So that was uh, Dr. Lisa Milkey, the head of the Mucosal Immunity and Cancer Laboratory at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Centre. Folks, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's uh, it's always fun coming in here to the studio for me. It's one of the few days when I get to leave my house, which uh, which is great. And I'm not on the way to a supermarket. So uh, thanks so much for continuing to listen because it is a pleasure being able to come into Triple R. For those of you who uh, may have missed part of the program, um, we did celebrate today the Day of Immunology, which is coming up at the end of this month, and there are some public events coming up, which will all be online, all be fabulous. Uh, get on board with those. Google Day of Immunology, and you will find the details. I'm going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. I can see that Matt and Cam are over there ready to go in Studio 2. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again in about a week's time. Have a great week and stay safe. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. <laughs>